Father, we thank you just so much for your goodness. Uh, Lord God, we hear you working um, in uh, just multiple ways, um, in multiple nations and areas. Uh, Lord, just pray for Lucy's sister um, that you would grant her grace to know you. Lord, what an amazing, amazing thing. And Lord, it is not at all too difficult for you. It is an easy thing for you. And so we just pray that you would grant life, um, grant repentance, and even to Lucy's parents, uh, Lord God, that you would glorify yourself through humbling them and drawing them to you. Um, but we thank you for Lucy's boldness. Thank you for her generosity. And just pray that you would bless her richly. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that Genevieve um, had with the ladies this last weekend, and just pray that that would, uh, that those seeds would bear fruit, um, and uh, that you would grant great mercy and good, um, your goodness, even as you have granted to us, O oh Lord God. Uh, thank you for this morning and the opportunity we have to uh, think uh, more about what does it mean to know you, and how do we, um, how do we pursue that? Um, we just uh, pray that you bless this time. Pray that you bless those who are uh, on the road traveling. Give them safety and uh, prepare us for the main gathering here shortly. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right. Um, so I remember what I said kind of at the beginning of this Knowing God series. What we're doing at the first, uh, first stage is talking about... Um, uh, um, really some kind of preliminaries before we actually talk about God's attributes, his character. Um, and so the preliminaries have been, first, um, just setting that stage of knowing God as the goal of human existence. Um, you know, John 17, 3, um, Jesus is talking to the Father, and he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And we talked about, well, what does it mean to know God? We could talk about different senses of knowing. So you talk about notional, knowing facts. You could talk about relational, knowing a person uh, intimately. You could talk about affectional knowledge in the sense that your knowledge, not only it's sticking in your mind, but it's affecting your dispositions, your desires. Uh, and then along with that, actional knowledge, knowing as a skill and things you're going to do. Uh, we said that even in the storyline of Scripture from Eden to the new creation, um, really the goal uh, in both bookends of the Bible is relational knowledge with God face to face. And really all of those senses of knowledge come together. Uh, we talked about the definition, uh, this definition I've been using, knowing God as God has designed us to know him means having a peaceful and intimate relationship with him through his initiative in which we increasingly know more about him, the notional sense, such that our affections are changed by this knowledge that's the affectional sense, such that we respond to him properly. That's the actional sense. So it all comes together. Uh, it's a full and well-rounded when we talk about knowing God. And then the last couple of weeks we talked about, well, um, how do we know God in the sense of, uh, well, all of those senses. We stop first at relational, uh, where um, God has to foreknow uh, the individual um, and then that person comes to know God through the gospel, through the Son, through Jesus Christ, to know God in a relational way, to have peace, uh, in, uh, have a peaceful and intimate relationship. And then we also talked about sources of notional knowledge. How do we know more facts uh, about God? Some of that comes from the creation, uh, both in terms of just the, the creation itself, but also even how history unfolds. Uh, and then we talked about how God makes himself known through words. Um, that in, in history and in the scriptures, we can see how he's done that directly, voices from heaven at times. Uh, he's 
but he, um, also in a fallen world, he often does it indirectly. We can't have face-to-face -face knowledge in a fallen world, not yet. Uh, that's where we're headed. So there has to be an indirectness often in how God speaks. Um, so speaking through prophets and then uh, speaking through the scriptures. So all of, those, um, uh, all of those ways that God makes himself known, reveals himself, they all cohere. They all come together. But um, the scriptures are going to be the thing that give us the definite framework to interpret everything else. But still, um, there is knowledge and uh, affectional knowledge imparted through, say, the creation. So we were driving home last night, and we're driving um, outside of um, Kennewick, and there's this beautiful sunset, absolutely gorgeous, you know, over the rivers and all of that. Well, I know that God is communicating himself through that, and so I can respond with my affections and give glory and thanks and honor to the Lord. Nothing uh, new is being communicated in terms of something that Scripture doesn't already say, but it does work on my affections and my disposition uh, through that means um, in that particular instance of creation. Or even uh, history, even in some of the things I was recounting about this fellow uh, that was in our group and then lost touch and then we got together at the, uh, the conference, and you see how history unfolds, and you see God's goodness unfolded over time. Of course, there's evil things that happen in the world, and hard things, we understand that, but there's also good things that where we can say, yeah, God is, we know God is working in all of it, um, but um, even as history unfolds, we can appreciate and say, God is communicating himself. He's, he's revealing himself through these things, and we can give thanks um, through all of that. So that's just a recap where we've been. Any questions up to this point, clarification on any of this stuff. Okay, so uh, last thing, uh, I think next week, Lord willing, we'll be able to start talking about just, all right, let's now start talking about the different attributes of God, who God is, and just, you know, meditating on that. But there's one more preliminary thing I want to do, and it goes under this heading and under this question, how do we speak of God? And by this... Um, what I mean is, as we are working together in this time um, to know more about God, we have to speak. Uh, we have to use language. We have to use human language to talk about God. So the question is, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this question before, um, how, uh, what is the proper way of speaking about God? In other words, how do we speak about God rightly? Some of this is going to be attitude. We can talk about our attitude and how we speak about God, and that is totally part of this. But the other way is um, some people have asked the question, well, if God is so great and amazing and his greatness is beyond searching out, how can we possibly use human language to even describe him? And so that's kind of what we just want to meditate on a little bit this morning uh, how do we speak about God? How do we, and the, you know, really what we're asking is how do we speak about God rightly? How do we speak about God rightly? Our speech is moral, meaning our speech can be right or wrong. And we want, especially as we talk about God, our speech to be right. Uh, it is a dangerous thing to speak about God wrongly, Okay. And just to give you an illustration of that, let's talk about the book of Job for a second. Let's talk about the book of Job. So Job, I take Job to be the first book written of the Bible, okay? So what's interesting as you go through Job 
is you've got all of these guys, smart guys, all of them are smart, and they're talking about God, okay? And uh, why are they talking about God? What's the majority of the book of Job? You've got these dialogues in the middle. What are they all talking about? His su- yeah, suffering, why Job's suffering happened. And, you know, they're, but along, as they're talking about how the suffering happened, they're operating, they know God exists, and they know God is in some somehow has brought this about. Even Job affirms that at the beginning, and the narrator says, yeah, Job, Job said that, you know, um, uh, you know uh, naked I came from my womb, and naked I will depart. Uh, may the name of the Lord be praised. He recognized the source of his suffering was ultimately from God. They all recognized that, but a lot of the dialogue in the, uh, between his friends and him throughout is, why? Why is this happening? And a lot of what they're doing, because they don't have a Bible, they are reasoning from the other sources where God reveals himself. So some of this might be oral tradition passed down, but some of this is just reasoning from creation itself, uh, or from experience, and they're trying to reason out why did this happen. And really, Job's friends are like, well, what happened to you so we can avoid it? Which is not a good motivation, but, um, but that's what they're trying to do. And even Job, um, he makes lots of statements about who God is. Job's friends make a lot of statements about who God is. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, how well did they do in talking about God? Sure. Do they say true things? Do the Job and his friends say true things about God? Yeah, because even in the dialogues, you will see some of those things quoted in the New Testament favorably. So some, a lot of the things they affirm even about God, uh, you know, later authors will say, yeah, that was true. And that is true. A lot of the breakdown does occur when they try to take true things and then apply it. So a lot of the breakdown is applying truth wrongly, uh, which still gets you in trouble, okay? Now, um, to summarize, so Joe basically thinks, well, I don't, uh, if, if someone suffers, it's because they've sinned. I haven't sinned, therefore something is wrong with how God is operating. That's essentially to boil a lot of what he says down, and he says more than that, but uh, that's what he says. Job friends operate by the same principle. Uh, if, you've, if you suffer, you must have done something wrong. Therefore, God's, God's right. Therefore, Job, you must be wrong. But it's the same logic for both sides, right? But they're both making claims about God and how God operates. And so then let's get to the end. Uh, let's get to the end and see how God himself talks about how they've talked about him. Uh, at the end, uh, and, and one of the things that happens in the dialogues, especially you see this in, say, 28, when Job's reflecting on wisdom, He's basically saying, we can't figure this out. We've got, we've, got, um, we've got creation, we've got our experience, but we can't figure this stuff out. Which is why Job is probably the first book of the Bible. It sets up for why you need a Bible. Because it gives the rest of, like, how is this all going to unfold? How can God be right and man be right? In any case, though, by um, the time we get to the end, after Elihu speaks, uh, we get God showing up, and now he one of the things he does, one of the key things he does, he talks about how, and evaluates how they've been talking about him, which kind of fits within what we're talking about. How do we speak of God rightly? 
And just this idea of speaking about God wrongly is dangerous. So we just want that sense going in. So someone read Job 38, 1 through 3. And you can, and then what happens? Basically, in a lot of the ensuing chapters, and when God's speaking to Job, Job doesn't say much. But what is God saying? Yeah, like He just unfolds His magnificence to 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 to, to Job, right? But how does He start? What does He talk? What is God saying in verses, you know, two and three? A little bit, yeah. How dare you? Kind of seems like it has that tone, but specific. A little bit of sarcasm for sure, right? Um, uh, you know, I'll question you and you make it known to me. It's ridiculous, right? Um, so what was, at least what is, what is God saying here that was Job's, you know, couched in these questions and the sarcasm? What is God saying is his fault? What's that? Yeah, he did what without knowledge? is you speaking without knowledge, right? So he's speaking, he's reasoning he, from a human level, and some of the things he says are true, but um, the way he has spoken about God wrongly, without knowledge, right? And God's calling him up on it, and he's saying, let me expound to you who I am. Um, and then we see, you know, I wish, I wish we had all the time to go through these, um, maybe in our you know, some later sessions we'll be able to come back to these chapters. They're great chapters to read regularly. Um, but by the end, after God has done this and confronted him with his grandeur, his majesty, uh, we get where Job ends in chapter 42. Uh, someone read Job 42, 1 through 6. Okay, so basically what is Job saying by the end? Yeah, you're right. So he's repenting, okay? But what specifically is he repenting of? Yeah, speaking without knowledge. Yeah, yeah, his man's perspective. And even taking truth that they knew through God's revelation, but it got distorted, right? And it was got misapplied. But and to the extent that God is saying, you've spoken of me without knowledge. Um, and now, what does Job say? He's like, I see you. It's not just that I've heard about you. Now I see you. And he's, he's blown away, right? Uh, but he repents. He repents of speaking of God wrongly. And that, 
gets back to our question, how do we speak of God rightly? It is a dangerous thing to speak of God wrongly. Uh, and so that's where we're guarded. Now, what's also interesting is God also addresses the other three friends and also addresses how they speak. So look at verses 7 through 9. Someone read that. Okay, so what's God's complaint against the three friends? What was that? Uh, well, yeah, you haven't spoken of me as right as my servant Job has, which is a little bit surprising because Job has his own faults, but at least there was a lot of what Job said that was right about who God is. But uh, again, what it, God is calling these three guys on the carpet, you haven't spoken to me of what is right. In fact, what do they have to do because they haven't spoken of God what is right? They have to sacrifice, right? So they have to make, have atonement made. They have to have Job pray for them, kind of in a priestly intercessory role on their behalf. So speech, wrong speech about God is dangerous, right? It is sinful depending on... Now, there's a sort of speech where you could be mistaken, right? You just... You don't know. You're, we, we understand we are limited in knowledge. We talked about that. We, God's greatness is unsearchable. But there is a sort of speech about God that is wrong, right, and sinful. And so even as we talk about talking about God, we've got to be careful, and we want to approach it uh, uh, rightly. Um, you can also think of um, the, one of the commandments, right, um, uh, don't lift up the name of your God for what is worthless. Um, our speech and our speech about God and our speech about his name, uh, we have to be careful. Why? Why do we have to be careful? Um, what does Job kind of show or illustrate about our speech about God? That we can be wrong, and who's going to hold us accountable if we're wrong? God is, right? Because God observes always our speech. Our speech generally, but then our speech about him. Uh, because this connects with one of the, God's attributes that we'll dwell on more fully later. God is everywhere. He is everywhere present with 100% of his being which means he's 100% present right here, right now, as we are seeking to meditate on him and on his attributes and speak, seeking to speak of him rightly. So it's kind of like, uh, imagine, when, you ever, you ever uh, speak about someone when they're not in the room? How easy is that to speak of someone when they're not in the room? Pretty easy, right? Uh, even to say things that you wouldn't say to their face, right? But um, as we think about speaking about God, 
we always want to keep in mind we are before the face of God, and we're always speaking of him. Whenever we speak about him, he's always in the room. He's always in the room, he's always present, and he's always monitoring our speech. Now, that's kind of the danger side, but on the flip side of that, God wants us to speak of him. Uh, Go to 1 Peter 2. Um, and someone, someone read First uh, Peter two, nine through ten. So we have received mercy as God's chosen people to do what? Excuse me. Proclaim his excellencies. Now, um, what do you think of when you hear that? Yeah, so definitely it's going to be sharing the gospel, which is going back to our relational knowledge. That's how you move from a a relationship of enmity with God to a relationship of peace. But does it, is it only the gospel? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be God's excellencies. Now here he does have a he does have a focus on the gospel, but it's bigger than that, right? It's talking about who God is, what He has done in all of His acts. Um, his character, um, that's who we're to be. If God, what is the goal of Christianity, of human existence? To know God. So, now, if, which means that God is going to be our treasure, our delight. We're going to love speaking about him. So we're not going to only talk about how do you come to know God, but we're also going to be just talking about God because he is our treasure. He is the goal of our existence. He is our delight. We love his excellencies, and when you love something that's the excellencies of someone, you just naturally talk about it. That's just what we do um, as human beings. I love good steak. I'm going to talk about the excellencies of this steak. Uh, I love good, um, good books. I'm going to talk about books, you know, things like that. But um, it, it, it's a, when we talk about God, right, we do so with reverence, knowing that he's always in the room, and we do so... Uh, with joy, proclaiming his excellency. So there's both the danger and the delight of speaking of God. We need to be careful when we do it, but God wants us to do it, and it delights his soul when we speak about him and when we speak about him rightly, okay? Uh, Any questions up to this point uh, or comments or, yeah, yeah, Patricia? Right. Right. It's, uh, well, a lot of it boils down to that misapplied truth, right? So we can do this very easily, actually. Um, Can we become Job's friends? 
Yeah, because we can say things like when someone's suffering, and we can say things like that, well, God is sovereign, he's going to work it all out in the end. True, but is that, I mean, is that exactly how you would say that to that person who is suffering in that moment? Probably not, um, because you need to apply truth rightly. That's part of what wisdom is. You could go to that actional knowledge, right? um, Knowledge is a skill. So it's not just the knowing the facts, but how do you apply those facts? And that's where Job and his friends uh, went astray. Um, And not just um, uh, how they characterized God, you know, and what they were saying through all of that. So, yeah. Job is hard. It's hard because, um, but it it does illustrate a lot of where, um, why humans need God uh, uh, to speak, to teach us how to speak about him. Uh, really, a lot of Job sets that up. It's like, okay, uh, we're all a bunch of humans. We're trying to put our heads together. We're brilliant guys, we're, and we're trying to figure it out, and we can't figure it out. We can't figure out what God is doing. And so what, what do you need? You need revelation. You need God to speak, which is what happens at the end and what happens and sets up for the rest of the Bible. You need the Bible. You need revelation to teach you how do you speak rightly about God uh, and how he is operating in the world. So, Okay, uh, any other questions up to this point. So we're just illustrating the dangerousness of speaking about God, but also it's something we ought to do and delight in, right? So it's kind of those both sides of, of where, we're, where we're walking here. So any questions? Okay, so then the next thing is, remember, like I said, some people say, well, God is so great and so awesome and so separate from his creation, how could we even possibly say anything with human speech, that would be accurate about God. And so we want to think about that for a little bit. You guys ever thought about that before? Ever crossed your mind or heard someone talk about that? Like God is so transcendent, so um, different, that how could we even use human speech to talk about them? You ever heard anything like that before? Genevieve? Oh. Yeah, so there's... the. Yeah, exactly. So there's that, you even see that with like something like God's name, like you don't want to, you don't want to mishandle God's name at all. So you want to not even speak about it or speak about it in a very oblique way, right? Um, yeah. Any others that have encountered that idea before? Yeah, Genevieve. Yeah. Yeah, they'll say the name, which you even see that in the Old Testament. There are times where uh, it'll say Hashem, which is just Hebrew for the name. Um, so there, there is that that sort of an idea. Yeah, they won't type out. Um, uh, they'll they'll blank out. They'll do G dash D. Um, you'll see that. So there's that kind of aspect of it. But there will be people, even philosophers or theologians, who will say, well, you you can't because God is so different from His creation, so separate, so transcendent. You can't even actually say anything with human language. Now that's wrong. But we need to think about why it's wrong, okay? Uh, And so what we want to talk about is the adequacy of language to speak of God. The adequacy of language to speak of God, okay? Where are we going, where would you start, where would you start in addressing someone that said, well, um, God is just so out there, so great, so transcendent that you can't even say anything about him? Where, could, where would you start to, to dispel that? Good. Okay, good. And even, so Adam and Eve, 
why, why are you going to Adam and Eve? What are you thinking about with Adam and Eve? Good. Yeah, excellent, right? So God um, has created humanity, and he converses. He gives commands. He gives commands in language uh, that is understandable to uh, Adam and Eve to do their, um, what they're supposed to do. And there's an intimacy. There's a face-to-faceness in their relationship. I would argue you can go back even further, even prior to mankind. Uh, where do we see God as a communicative being first? Yeah, he talks to himself in... Now think about... This is profound. Go to Genesis 1. Go to Genesis 1. What's that? Yeah. And even before that, um, someone read Genesis 1, 1 through 3. What did, what did God do in verse 3? He said. Who's he talking to? Creation. Yeah, well, even, well, creation doesn't exist until he speaks it into being, right? He's talking to himself. He's, he, well, he's talking to himself, right? He's communicating. He's communicating. So language doesn't originate with humanity. Language originates with God himself. God is inherently a communicative being. Uh, and uh, uh, we could see the same, uh, the same reality in Genesis reflected elsewhere throughout the, the scriptures. Go to Psalm 33. So Psalm 33 is reflecting on creation and other things. Um, Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. Someone read that. Through 9, please. Through 9, please. Okay, so it's reflecting on, you know, Genesis 1. What do we see here? What does it say about God? He spoke. And what happened when he spoke? It was, right? So it's not only that he's speaking, but he's able to do things with words. You know, human speech isn't always just, it's not just speech. We do things with words. Um, I now pronounce you husband and wife. That affects a reality. Well, how much more so with God, right? He speaks. Uh, in fact, look back up at verse 6. Um, remember parallelism, where one line will have one idea, and then the next line will kind of rhyme and, and express a similar idea in a different way? What does it say in verse 6? About God, Specific to God's communication. Yeah. We're, we're made with what? 
the word, right? The word of the Lord. Uh, let there be light. Um, what about the second line? What does it say? It's not the word anymore. What is it? Breath. Breath. Uh, this is the word ruach, uh, which, is, uh, which gets translated in Genesis uh, 1. Um, the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. So what do you have in Genesis 1? And it's reflected here. You have a speaker, you have a content of what is said, and then you have the breath that carries it forward. Which, if you think about even human speaking, that's kind of how it works, right? You speak, but it's not just you speaking. There's a content to what you are saying, and then there's the, the movement of air, so to speak, to make it happen. But for God, that is an infinitely more profound reality but what you should also see in these verses is it predates creation because though God's communication actually produces creation. So he's not speaking to creation. He's speaking creation into existence. He's speaking to himself. He's inherently communicating. He's inherently communicative in his essence. So, yeah, Julie. So that word for breath, is it the same word that was used when um, I think that's slightly different. Um, I have to look at, yeah, I have to look at it. And it's not just because, like, not every use of the word, um, that Hebrew word for breath, indicates the spirit. So you got to be careful. Like, so sometimes it does, like in Genesis 1. And I think there's a reality in Psalm 33 where he's, he's reflecting on what God is doing through his speech. Um, but not every time that word is used is it referring to the Holy Spirit, okay? But what is interesting in this is then when you get to the New Testament, okay, and we get to John 1. How does John 1 start? So go to John, yeah, was the word, and what? What about the word? The word was with God, and the word was God, right? Um, so that you you see, you get more unfolding information. All right, um, you've got uh, multiple persons in God, but what's also interesting is the person who is with God is called the Word, right? And it also illustrates and comes alongside with what we've been saying. God is inherently communicative in who he is, in his essence. So if we, we, will, we will spend a great deal of time thinking about the Trinity, but one way, it seems like Scripture itself characterizes the Trinity as as speaker, word, in terms of content. Uh, and there's more to it than that. We can't just say, oh, the, the word is the content. But, and breath, right? God, but all to illustrate this idea, God is inherently communicative in himself. Um, which, and we could reflect on this more when we talk about the Trinity because God is inherently communicative, because there are three persons that have eternal dialogue with themselves, uh, with, uh, within God, um, that communicativeness, together with God's goodness, gives the ability for people to exist, period, and for then God to reveal himself to us. So it's good that God is inherently communicative in, his, in himself, because that gives us the only hope for us knowing anything about God. Unless God speaks to speaks creation into existence, speaks us into existence, and then speaks to us, can we have communication 
with him. Okay? Now, back to where we started in all of this, right? We were talking about the adequacy of language to speak for God. That's where, I, where we got on to this. So our first thing we would say is, well, language didn't originate with humans. Language originated with God. Um, he is inherently communicative. Um, now, even that in and of itself, because God could just speak with himself, and that would be you know, whatever language that would look like or whatever that communication looks like in the Trinity, in all eternity, um, you know, that would be enough. But we have to do a little bit more. What else would we say um, to justify that language and even human language is um, sufficient, uh, adequate, I'll use the word adequate, um, to speak of God? Okay, so um, first, language is adequate to speak of God because God himself communicates, okay? Language is God's baby. It's part of who he is. Um, so that's our starting point. But that in and of itself, God could be communicating him with, within himself for all eternity, and, um, but how do we make the jump from God's language and God's communication with himself to then his communication with us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So God speaks to humans. So back to the Adam and Eve thing, and we could specify any number of people in Scripture. Uh, and back to what we were talking about a couple weeks ago, God reveals himself. God speaks to himself. He speaks to prophets. He speaks through the Scriptures such that what is he happy to call the scriptures, which are written in human language? His word, 2 Timothy 3.16, what does he call it? All scripture is God, yeah, God breathed, theonoustos, um, that idea that this is the breath of God that produced these words. God is happy to call the scriptures, which are written in human language and which speak about him, and he's happy to say, this is my word. This is me speaking. Um, and what do the scriptures do? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what um, do the scriptures speak of who God is? Yeah. The scriptures speak about who God is, and God's saying, yeah, that's me speaking about who I am, right? And it's describing who God is, so human language is adequate to the task of, because God's saying, all right, that, um, the, the scriptures are human words, they're God's words too, but, um, but they're human words, I'm putting my stamp on them to say that they're my words, and a lot of the content of scripture is speaking about God. And so the language of Scripture must be adequate, and human language must be adequate to speak of God. You see how that works? Because God's endorsing it. God's endorsing it and saying, this language, which is human language, is actually my language too, and it is describing me, and it is adequate to do so. Now, we've got to be careful here. Just because, do the Scriptures say everything there is to say about who God is? No. Because it goes along with an idea we talked about last week. Can you get to the end of knowing God? No, not even in eternity. 
Um, for all eternity, God will be disclosing himself, communicating with us who he is. So scripture is adequate to know God. It's not exhaustive and comprehensive because God is uh, limitless in that sense. Okay, you see how this is working. Any, any thoughts or questions? Yeah, Bruce. Yeah. 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 Well, and in that, it was even specifically just about Jesus, right? Um, and his actions and his work. Uh, and so God speaks of himself. He speaks of himself sufficiently to ha- give us uh, the ability to have a relationship with him, to know things about him. And yet it's not ultimately comprehensive. So we've got to be careful of saying, well, it says everything there is possibly to know about God. No, it's adequate, and the language is adequate for the purposes for which God has sent it. Right? That's the idea. Okay, now, as we go forward then, having that idea, who starts the conversation about who God is? God does. So he sets the ground rules for, because remember, this whole, the whole question that's governing today is, how do we speak of God rightly? We have no way of knowing how to do that unless God starts the conversation and teaches us with human language, teaches us using human language how to talk about him. So that sets the ground rules for how we investigate and speak of God as we go forward in the coming weeks of of talking about who God is. Now, that might seem like a simple conclusion, um, but it's actually not in the way that you see how people, even good and godly theologians, talk about God. Because a lot of times they'll start with a human notion about who God is, or they say, well, God must be like this. And then they will take that understanding and actually read it on top of the scriptures. No maliciousness, that's just, you know, um, but, um, but what we have to understand is God is the one who sets the ground rules, he sets the rules of communication, and he gives us forms and ways of speaking about himself in the scriptures themselves. So even as we think about and consider how we talk about God, we're always going to be looking to the scriptures and saying, is that what scripture says? Is that what God says about himself? Because God is teaching us through the human language of scripture how we speak of him. Does this make sense? So let me give you um, some cautions. You must be very careful about using extra biblical language and categories. It's not illegitimate. You just got to be very careful in doing it. Can you guys give me a word that is not used in the scriptures that is accurate, accurately depicts who God is? Uh, awesome might be there, but uh, yeah, but yeah, ineffable maybe. There's a one um, that is central to who He is. Three Trinity. There you go. Uh, Trinity is the poster child um, word for. A word that is not in Scripture. Uh, it is a category. It is a way of um, talking that is not using biblical language per se, but that is accurately reflecting what Scripture says about who God is. Does that make sense? So that is legitimate. 
Sometimes um, we need, we strive with language, with human language, to to try to encapsulate what Scripture is affirming. So it is legitimate because the, the, the concepts that is behind the word Trinity, all the concepts that are behind the word Trinity, are affirmed in Scripture. So that is a legitimate use of extra-biblical language to talk about who God is. However, you've still got to be careful. Anytime you use a word that is uh, extra-biblical or as an extra-biblical category, um, you might get into trouble. So think about this. Um, if If we use language to describe what Scripture affirms or implies, that is correct. So that's Trinity, right? Scripture affirms and implies the Trinity, so we can use an extra-biblical word like Trinity, as long as we understand it, um, to refer to that. Here's a cat where we might get into trouble, or it's possibly fine. What if you started with an extra-biblical category, and then you might query Scripture to see if it has any info on it? So you might start with a human category, and then you might go to the scriptures and say, well, does scripture have anything to say about this concept? Uh, maybe something like ineffable, uh, which is really that you can't say anything about God. That's kind of actually what we've been talking about. Or even something like transcendent. I don't think there's a word, the word transcendent used in scripture. But what do we think of when we think of the word transcendent? Beyond, beyond, okay, maybe holy, right? So there's maybe an ethical quality to it, but uh, beyondness, uh, potentially, right? But usually transcendent, it's beyond, like it's high, it's exalted, it's beyond experience. Um, And so you start with that category, and it's like, well, does that, if I start with that category, and then I go to the scriptures and say, hey, does scriptures have anything to say about transcendence and God's transcendence? It would have to, in some ways, we would have to say, yes, God is holy. God is ultimately exalted. He is different from his creation. And yet there are some ways in which you could take the category of transcendence and then start twisting scripture. For example, if you believe that God is so transcendent, so beyond, that he can't possibly interact with his creation, now you've taken an extra biblical category and you've actually read that on top of the scriptures and twisted it. You see how this works? So it can be legitimate, but you've got to be very careful on how you, you interact with the scriptures. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And that we, we can even do this with biblical words, right? So justice is a very biblical word. It's used throughout, and yet we can take that, and you, you end up starting with a human conception, and then you bring the human conception to the scriptures rather than the reverse. Right. But the word justice, the new justice, the scripture uses it. So right. we, we think of justice now, we think of like social justice, which is not just. Right. Right. Here's where we could, we're, we're always going to be wrong if we form an unwarranted biblical category, uh, excuse me, forming an unwarranted extra biblical category and then reinterpreting scripture to fit the category, even if it's well meaning. So sometimes, um, the way people talk about immutability. Is God immutable? Exactly, right? What do you normally think of? Just, just give me a basic sense. If we talk about God's immutability, what are we talking about? 
He's unchanging. Okay. Now, some theologians and philosophers have said, then God can't change at all, meaning nothing. There is absolutely no response or change in his life. Which then starts to mean that he can't have emotions. Uh, he can't, like, interact with his creation. You, you see, what it's, immutability is not a bad category. It's just that sometimes people fill that category with their own thoughts of what it means, and then they start to read and reinterpret the scriptures to conform to that. Right. Right. And we struggle with those passages, right? Because we come to the passage where it says God relented or repented. It's basically the same word that's used for both. Because you use it of humans, they repent. And you use it of God. It's used of God. And so now we have to ask the question, well, um, is, what is this text affirming about who God is? Because a lot of times we're tempted to say, well, God can't change. And so then we say, well, it can't mean what it says. And now you're starting to get into very dicey territory. Because the only way we have of knowing God is what the Scripture says and what God is affirming about himself. Let's use another example. Is it wrong to speak about God having body parts? Is it wrong to speak about God having body parts? What's that? Does God have body parts? No, God does not have body parts, but it's not wrong to speak of him as having them as long as you understand that you're doing it in a way that we normally do in human speech, a metaphor. Okay? So, well, and we would say his, uh, the, the, the human nature of Christ has body parts, right? His divine nature does not. Um, but, uh, you, but you see, this is, this is where it gets complicated, right, is how are we speaking about God rightly? It's not wrong to speak about God, the hand of God. It's absolutely fine to talk about the hand of God, because Scripture does. Just to understand that you're talking in a metaphorical way. Right. It's all over the place, right? Um, and so, here's what a principle we're going to come back to. It can never be wrong to speak of God the way that Scripture speaks about him as long as we are interpreting the texts in their context with a proper hermeneutic, which just means a proper, uh, proper ground rules for interpreting the Scriptures. It can never be wrong to speak about God the way that Scripture speaks about him as long as we are interpreting texts in their context with a proper hermeneutic. So I have no problem talking about the hand of God. I have no talking about God relenting. I have no problem talking about God having emotions because Scripture himself, he describes himself in that way. Uh, now, we can reflect a little bit more. Are those things literally true of God or are they metaphorical? But, um, but we, we can never be wrong if we're using and speaking of Scripture the way, God's, uh, way Scripture speaks as long as we understand or interpreting the text correctly. So, uh, David, I think you had your hand up. Uh huh. Right. 
So when you talk about the image of God, you have to understand how are the biblical authors using that word and that concept? How are they using it? Because then that's how God is using it to describe himself. But what you get very dicey into saying, well, I'm in the image of God, therefore I have this quality, therefore God must. Right? You're getting, because uh, um, that's not the inherentness of what image is doing. Uh, biblical image is about imaging forth God to the world, displaying who God is. But reasoning backwards from you being the image of God to who God is is dangerous. Uh, so God does not have a body. The divine nature does not have a body. Uh, Christ has a divine and a human nature. Right. Well, the, the, the person of the Son, the Word, was born and took to himself a human nature. And that human nature has body parts. Um, but his, the, the divine nature of Christ does not. And that's another conversation for another day, right? But it gets complicated pretty quickly. Um, but in all of this, what, boil it down. What are we trying to do? We're trying to speak of God rightly, well so that he is honored. And we need his help. We need him to start the conversation. We need his help as we seek to do it together. Let's pray, and we'll jump into the task in coming weeks. Father, you are awesome, and we cannot speak of you except what you speak about yourself, what you affirm about yourself. And uh, yes, Lord, we, you've given us language to even to try to articulate that, and that is adequate to the task because you are a communicator, oh Lord God. And we just, we just pray that we would do that. A lot of what we're doing this morning, even in the gathering, we are seeking to respond rightly. Uh, you've begun the conversation, and we want to sing. Uh, we want to sing your praises and your excellencies. We want to hear from you, from the scriptures themselves. Uh, we want to obey you. Um, we want to pray to you. Uh, we want to speak of you to others in fellowship. Uh, Lord, help us. Give us what we need for this task. Um, Lord, help us to uh, do so with reverence. Help us to do so with right categories and right thinking uh, and carefulness. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.